When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There was a time when I felt like I would never leave that really dark place. But, you know, we're in a constant state of flux and everything changes. And just as easily as it can go to shit, it can come back. Nothing lasts forever and you will come out of that. You just have to be patient. That is artist and author Sophie Hardcastle. And this is episode 190 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to episode 190 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. You're you. We're here and we're going to do it together once again. I'm so grateful you joined me here today. My guest today is Sophie Hardcastle. She's an artist. She's an author. She is someone who lives with a very interesting brain. And I am so grateful that she chose this week to come and spoke with me, speak with me. <laughs> Um, more about her in, in just a moment. Thanks, everybody, for all your lovely emails that you wrote to me about mum. I really, really appreciate your kindness. It's very, very sweet for so many people that reached out. I'm really, really grateful. A big thank you to everybody that also gave me feedback about the Nathan Cavalieri episode. It was a cracker. That was last episode. A lot of people really enjoying that one. So I encourage you to have a listen to it. If you do want to email me at all, it's pretty simple. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's the best place to get me. Uh, don't really check the Facebook much, but um, I am there as well if, if you're interesting, interested. Uh, my present post past tense is not happening today. Do I have enough caffeine? Do I have too much caffeine? The conundrum of my existence continues. I uh, hope your week has been okay. I've been quite a busy bee this week. I flew to both Brisbane and Melbourne and back in a day this week. Brisbane and back and Melbourne and back in a day. 
not on like a separate day for each one, but sometimes you just got to get face to face. Texts are great. Phone calls are greater. Skype is greater still, but some things need to be face to face. They really do. And uh, for me, particularly in uh, the more critical business moments, nothing can go past getting face to face with someone. Never underestimate the power of communicating with the person face to face, even to the point like to the point of mobile phones. Sometimes I'll actually get a bit miffed with Audrey. Like she'll finish work and call me straight away and tell me about a day. I'm like, well, when you walk in the door, we've got nothing to talk about. You know, it's okay to tell me you finished working on the way home, but you know, leave something for the face to face part. It's important. It's important to connect with people. Um, I can't really tell you about what I went to go meet about, but uh, two separate projects that are equally as exciting. One is a short-term project and one is a very long-term project. Um, but that's the key to this, I find, as I, I am, you know, uh, it's slightly more regular employment with both radio and television, but I'm essentially still a freelancer. And I, I do find that the key to feeling stable in a seasonal job, which is in television, it's, it's season to season, um, and in radio, it's survey to survey. Um, so it's nothing super secured. Uh, I do find having a bit more control of where I put the effort around creating work and generating work does make me feel better. And I've kind of divided it up. So about 60% of my time I spend on what's paying the bills right now. Uh, that's the TV and the radio. And then I spend about 20% of my time on what's happening next year like in like future business in the next 12 months, 20% on the next five years. So stuff a little further down the track. That's a little more, you know, kind of a bit more out there. And then I spent 10% of my time on just like projects like to the moon, you know, <laughs> like what's, what's the most outlandish thing it could be. And, and I'll spend 10% of my time on that. And I do find that, that's what helps me feel more in control of what's going on in my day. It does keep everything moving along. I often find that I have to float about five to seven things at once and slowly, slowly push each one up a little more each week. And like, and I'm sure anyone will tell you this for the, you generally do have to keep, I find I have to keep about five things afloat to get one thing up. Um, but that's okay. But it does help my brain, does help my brain feel that I am more in control of what's going on moving forward under my own steam or trying to create opportunities um, myself does give me a sense of safety. Uh, but that's just me. Um, it might be different for you. I'd be interested to hear your breakdown. Send osher email at gmail.com, which is also where you can send me a photograph of what you're looking at right now. We like to call it a podsy here. Uh, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. It's a photograph taken of what you're looking at while you're listening to this. I've got some great ones this week. Uh, I've got quite a few uh, kitchens and kids' rooms getting tidied up. i got uh, photos, great photos of uh, absolute standstill traffic, um, both in uh, Melbourne and in Brisbane. Um, a beautiful photo of uh, a misty valley with a winding road in it that kind of you see in an Audi commercial. I've got some of that in it. That was, that was great. It's always good to get those because it helps me find out more about you. Send Osher email at gmail.com is my email. Speaking of uh, roads, I only got on my bicycle twice this week. I am trying to get on it more, but I can't undersell how much better I feel when I've had a ride. 
And I've, I've got to remember that to tell myself, you know, if I'm having a tricky day, just get on the bike, smash out an hour of intervals. I just feel much better for it. I just know I have to do that. I just know I have to do that. A big thanks to everyone that's supporting the show on Patreon. You are the reason that I can make this show. Uh, so if this show does give you some value, if you listen to this, if you find yourself looking forward to it, I'd ask you to consider maybe throwing a few shekels our way so I can help pay Andy and Haley that helped me make this show. P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash osher. There is an exclusive episode every month for supporters. Uh, there's one coming this week with uh, Ruben Miaman, who has been on the show before. But he has since written an incredible book about weight loss. And we also talk about science and basically scientific thought in the modern world. So it's a, it's a bit of a cerebral one, but I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. We had a fun night here at the ranch. When I say ranch, I mean uh, house. When I say house, I mean apartment. We had a fun night here. Uh, most of Gigi's cousins that are her age came over. So there was uh, a lot of Pixar on the television and a lot of mattresses on the floor and just the kind of faint whiff of sneaky kid farts. Just no one running up to them, but they're definitely there. <laughs> it was a fun night. We had a fun night. And there are lots of pancakes this morning. It's Sunday morning right now. Lots of pancakes. Uh, let me tell you about my guest today. I hope your week was good, but uh, I should really get to this because I've got a lunch. I've got to get to bloody family weekends. Crikey. Um, let me tell you about my guest today. I am so happy that we can get this young lady on. Sophie Hardcastle is an artist, an author, and an all-round adventurous soul from Sydney, Australia. She shot to fame when she published her first book, Running Like China, which is a memoir of a life interrupted by madness. And what it does is that book, it chronicles her struggle with coming to terms with her own mental illness and life with a brain that operates differently from others. Her second book isn't a memoir, it's a novel. It's called Breathing Underwater. And she's currently in the midst of writing a third book, which she does talk about today. Sophie is also an exceptionally talented artist currently studying at the Sydney College of Art. And she's so good. She's recently been awarded a $100,000 scholarship to continue her studies for a year at Oxford University. She is going from strength to strength. It's an incredible time in her life to speak with her, and I, I couldn't be happier that she came around. She is a remarkable, thoughtful, funny, and strikingly smart young woman. I'm so happy she came around to share her story with us, you and me, this week. You can follow her on Instagram. She's Sophie underscore Hardcastle. It's pretty simple. S-O-P-H-I-E underscore hard. Castle. Let her know that you heard her on the show. A quick trigger warning up top. We do discuss self-harm in this episode. So about 20 minutes from now, uh, you'll hear her and I talking about her growing up on the northern beaches. If you skip forward until you hear me complaining about my bloody hearing damage, you'll have emerged on the other side of that conversation where she and I were talking about it. So come enjoy a cup of coffee or a tea. Whatever's your choice, whatever's your pleasure, come and sit around my beautiful parker table in the super comfy Eames chairs with the delightful Sophie Hardcastle. Good morning, Sophie. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I know it's a bit of a trek. Where in the, where in the world are you living at the moment? Um, I'm living in the inner city in... <sighs> Yeah, How in urban Surrey, of you. Surrey Hills, I know. In the, An artist living in Surrey Hills. 
mind blowing, isn't it? So I can be close to my studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it actually. Is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you got it. <laughs> Are you in a loft? No, I'm in a I'm in a share house, but um, it is the ultimate cliche for an artist. We have three terrace houses that are all joined at the back. Um, and so everybody can kind of go between each other's houses and, um, yeah, it's a lot of artists and musicians and um, fun, exciting people. Wow. Yeah, it's fun. That, yeah, that sounds like a place that is... You don't do much work. Uh, well, <laughs> no, it sounds like a place where there's a lot of inspiration. Yeah. Um, and then you leave the house to go and um, work. It also sounds it like a place where there's a lot of distraction. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like a place where, um, oh, for me at least, healthy lifestyle choices would be difficult to make <laughs> <laughs> because you get home and there's will be always someone in some stage of a night out. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny they've um, the boy, like especially the boys living in the house next door to me are really good at sort of checking in with my mental health and really good at. Um, yeah, grounding me, like they're making sure that I'm eating. Um, like if I'm starting to get a bit off the air, then they're, yeah, they're checking in, have you slept last night? You should go back to your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. Oh, it's, that's great. Yeah, house of big brothers looking Well, that's me. good. That is, that, that's, that's good. It, yeah. I, I think the last time I could deal with a share house, I was 21. Yeah. And then okay. from then I was like, I'm too old for this shit. Yeah. Okay, I can't, I can't do this. I feel like that's a very young age to decide that you're too old for a share house. Well, I was around there. I started living with my first girlfriend, yeah, my first yeah. proper girlfriend. I was like, oh, this is way better than, you know. Sharing with grotty boys. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, knowing, you know, okay, there's, let's be honest, some boys aren't very well house trained yeah. and they don't. You know, the toilet brush is not just for decoration. You know, things like that. In a share house are paramount. Yeah. yeah. And uh graphic. <laughs> well, come on. Yeah, yeah. No. It's it. uh yeah, there was I have always gone for smaller house by myself. Yeah. Uh, but that's also just been me going, Oh, why do I want to talk to people when I get home? Yeah. I'd rather just be alone. <laughs> There's been a lot of Voluntarily, voluntary isolation, I guess, on yeah. my part <laughs> for many years. Where where did you grow up in Australia? Uh, I grew up on the northern beaches. Of Sydney? Yeah, of Sydney. Yeah. Which part? Um, Cromer. I don't know where that is. Halfway, halfway um, up the northern beaches. So which beach is closer to that? D-Way. Oh, okay. Then. Yeah, D-Way, it's kind of Cromer, Colorado and D-Way are sort of all bordering each other. Okay. Yeah, and I sort of grew up right in the middle of the three of them. Could you walk to the beach from where you lived? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I was, yeah, very, very lucky to grow up there. Wow. Um, yeah, every afternoon and every morning I was surfing and um, I had like one of those little um, rack things on the side of my bike. And so, yeah, I used to ride. I don't know how I had so much energy. I mean, I was so fit. I used to ride down every afternoon um, with my surfboard on the side and go with, the, the, yeah, like all the boys that were living in my street and have my wetsuit and everything and then ride home with it afterwards. And, yeah, I used to do that twice a day, every day of the week. Before school? Um, yeah, before school and after school. Um, yeah, because my parents, um, probably until I was about 12 or 13, were taking me um, like every afternoon 
Um, and then it got to the point where I was, you know, going into their bedroom at 5.30 in the morning, um, like, come on, you have to take me, blah, blah, blah. And so mum, like, went straight out and bought me this rack for my bike and was like, this is on you now. <laughs> We're not taking you. Yeah, because I think they, they got very over getting up um, at the crack of dawn, especially in winter. Did it, I mean, I guess at that point, as you get older, more much like you don't want to, you become picky about share houses. As you get older, you become picky about waves. You do, yeah. Um, yeah, I think when I was um, 15, 16, I was, yeah, really lucky. I got to travel a lot around Australia competing and that meant that we were surfing, yeah, amazing waves and coming home to, um, <laughs> to the local break was a bit annoying but, um, but no, it was great. But when you're small... It doesn't matter what the beach is doing. You're yeah. just, I'm out of the house and I'm in the water. I don't care if it's onshore. Yeah, I'm out there for eight hours and it's like the best thing ever and I'm coming in for my Powerade and kill a python and then going back out. Um. <laughs> a killer, for folks overseas, a killer python is like a jelly snake yeah. but a massive one. It's about, it's about 50 centimetres long yeah. and uh, it's probably got five times your average daily intake for sugar in it. Yeah, perfect, perfect when you're 10 years old. Yeah. <laughs> You're burning that much energy. Yeah. What do you learn about? I, I didn't start surfing until later in life. I was about 28, 29 when I started, but I body surfed a lot. But I learned a lot about, oh, there's this whole mentality about who goes first and who goes where and, you know, hierarchies and pecking orders and yeah. all that stuff always made me very uncomfortable. As a kid, what did you learn about about that? Um, it's funny I don't notice it as much until I go and surf a break that I'm not familiar with. And I think especially surfing as a girl or as a woman, um, I get dropped in on all the time. Um, yeah, when I surf somewhere new and nobody's seen me surf before, just the fact that I'm a woman, I, yeah, get dropped in on, which um, I don't know if anyone that doesn't surf, it's when you're on the wave and somebody, um, yeah, takes off in front of you and, um, yeah, essentially like steals the wave off you. It's and quite I'll, dangerous, not only yeah, annoying, it's quite dangerous. It is and it, and it's so annoying um, and I think it's just the assumption that I don't know what I'm doing or that, yeah, that I'm not going to be able to surf and then once they see me catch a few waves then then I kind of do get that respect back. But I notice it, I mean, it's so obvious because I go out with guys that have never surfed at that break either and it doesn't happen to them. Um, whereas at home where I grew up I've always – um, I guess because I know all the boys there and, and um, yeah, really like hold my own in the lineup and do have a lot of like respect, I guess. Well, that sucks that you travel to an unfamiliar break with people who are also unfamiliar with that break. Their respect is uh, implied when it's a man taking off on the wave, yeah. but it is utterly denied when it's a woman taking off on the break. Yeah, and, I mean, it's getting better, but... Um, That's still shit. It's still shit. <laughs> and, I, yeah, I find, like, especially the much older guys, um, you kind of get two types where it's either um, the guy, the, this you know, this 60 or 70-year-old man is so stoked that there's a girl out and he's like, here you go, love, like, this is a great way of coming for you. Um, yeah, kind of like go for it um, or you get the opposite where, you know, he just like flat out is from the age where um, women weren't allowed to be in the water at all and so, you know, he's just going to take off in front of you no matter what you do or what you say. How old were you when you were surfing competitively? Uh, sort of at 11 to 15. Crikey. 11 to 16. And on the road. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it was... 
a lot of fun, really, because we, yeah, probably from when I was 13 to 15, I was away almost every weekend. Um, definitely throughout winter, I was, yeah, away all the time. And, I, yeah, I got to see a lot of Australia's coastline, which was really cool. Did you travel with your family or...? Yeah, mostly with my mum. My dad took me to some competitions, but, yeah, it was mostly my mum. And actually, I mean, the most amazing thing about that was mum and I were so close um, because we used to spend, you know, hours and hours in the car together um, driving around the country. Yeah. So, yeah, it was really cool. And when – how did you deal with competition at at such a young age? I was very competitive, um, like fiercely competitive as a child and early teenager. So I loved it. Um, and I think it was only, yeah, kind of when I was 15, 16, that that's when I dropped out of competition because I did find that it was starting to take the fun out of surfing. And, you know, even when I was surfing at my home break with all of my friends, I was still, um, Sorry, I lost my No, it's all right. Audrey just came and gave me a kiss on the cheek. Where you? It was very sweet. Are you off, honey? I was, I was trying to be subtle. <laughs> it's like, don't make eye contact. That's all right. Nice to meet you. You too. Sorry to interrupt you. That's all right. Okay. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. See you, hon. Bye. We're talking about surfing losing its luster for you uh, as it became more competitive. You're about 15 or 16. Yep. Yep. Um, so I, yeah, when I was like kind of 15 or 16, um, I was surfing at a national level and, you know, like we had coaches and sponsors and all of that stuff. And it did, it like, it took the fun out of it because then when I was at home, um, I think I started, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd be around all my friends and, and in this water that was so familiar and um, something that I'd always felt really connected to. Um, I'd catch a wave and instead of, you know, having that elation that, that I had when I was little, um, of moving with that wave and with that energy, I was starting to, um, I was just so critical of myself. So I'd come off the wave and be like, fuck, I should have done that that way. And, you know, that would have only been scored like that. And my turn should have been like this. And, um, was so hypercritical that, um, yeah, I just really took the fun out of it. And I lost that really visceral connection that I have to the water. Um, and yeah, it, it just became a sport instead of a lifestyle thing which mm. I think is what's so special about surfing was uh, were you though as a 15 year old able to identify what you just described to me or did you just go this doesn't feel the same yeah I think it was that this doesn't feel the same um yeah. but the other I mean the other thing that made that period difficult was I um was sort of having the first symptoms of like a mental illness and so I was getting really tired and not enjoying anything and was really unmotivated. And so that also meant that I wasn't enjoying surfing um, with my friends and I wasn't enjoying competing and I was all of the things about travelling to surf in competitions and all of the excitement around that was going anyway. So I don't know how much of it was to do with, you know, the actual act of competing and how much of it was to do with getting sick. Right. Well, the, but... Being a teenager who's tired all the time and not into the things that you used to be into. It happens. Is, yeah. So, so how, how were you first able to discern the difference between this is normal teenager and like, I mean, when you're in it, you can't tell. So yeah. what was the first, how, when did you first go, oh, when, when did you first hear the words, we think this is something that isn't normal? Yeah. Um, I first went to a doctor probably just after I turned 16 um, and I wasn't even there for this. Um, I think I had a sore throat or like um, something cold related 
And um, and I said, oh, and by the way, I'm really tired all the time. I'm, you know, I'm sleeping 12-hour nights and I'm still waking up really tired and then sometimes I have to nap in the afternoon. And um, that energy that I was talking about before where I was riding down to the beach in the afternoons and I'm just gun-ho, that had all faded. And so I, and I, I found that so frustrating because I'd been a teenager that was just into everything um, and just had this, yeah, like um, – this energy that was never exhausted. And, um, yeah, and so I said this to this doctor. I was like, I'm really tired all the time. I don't understand why. And he um, told me to eat more salt. I remember that. Yeah, that was the thing. And then I left. Um, so then I'm at home, like, grinding a bit more salt onto my food, hoping that I was going to have more energy. Um, and then, yeah, probably a few months later it was um, – I was really starting to notice it because I'd be with my friends and I'd go to bed earlier than them and I'd wake up later than them and then throughout the day I was just not bothered to do anything. Um, but again, like you said, that's so normal for uh, nearly all teenagers. And my mum had kind of gone through the same thing when she was 15, 16. And so she was saying, you know, I, it's your body changing. You, you will be tired all the time. The same thing happened to me and you'll come out of this. Um, and I just didn't. And I think when I was... Um, 16, almost 17, I started getting these really, really intense waves of sadness for no reason. And I grew up on the Northern Beaches and I had this great family and um, was at a selective school and kind of had everything going for me. And so that, I think, was when it started to look different because I had every reason to be feeling great and to, um, yeah, be in a really positive place and I just wasn't. but like you said, it's really hard in um, at the time to to see that. And um, I guess I've always compared this period to dusk, to um, like that transition between day and night. Because even after the sun goes down, it's not immediately black. Like there's still residue of the day's light, and that's how it was for me. I think I was getting sick, but there was still parts of the Sophie before I was sick that um, was around and, you know, all those days were really, some were light and some were darker. And so there was no really clear cut line between just being an average teenager that was, yeah, lazy and not really bothered with stuff and somebody that was actually getting quite sick. Or moody or not into things as much as you used to be. And I mean, Gigi's 13 and she sleeps heaps and that's yeah, just what exactly. you do when you're, you're, you're 13. She's a foot and a yeah. half taller than she was when I met her. Yeah. Um, and, and that's – and also, you know, being – takes a, it out of you. <laughs> yeah. But also being being not into things that you used to be into and, and being moody, that's all very – Very normal. Very normal. As an yeah. aside, um, speaking of moody teenagers, as I found out last night, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. This is talking about <laughs> moody teenagers. I found out about the most moody teenager of all time. Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, yeah. lost her virginity on her father's grave. Oh, <laughs> wow. Does it get more goth than that, Sophie, I ask you? Probably not. Probably not. And That's then not... went on to write Frankenstein. Yeah, that makes sense. It's <laughs> a lot of sense. That's pretty, that's pretty goth. Oh, that's, that's like sinking in the most minutes that Pretty amazing. Pretty yeah. amazing stuff. It's in- interesting hearing you talking about it being a little like dusk, like twilight, where yeah. it's not quite night. Um, and certainly through my own experience, it was not only 
I mean, certainly once I became aware of it, and as, as a teenager, you m might not have had the insight only because you don't understand any other world than the one you've lived. Yeah. Um, but when I got sick, it was I was much older and I had a lot more um, kind of perspective in various kinds of illness. Uh, but not I got freaked out not only because it was twilight, but I, I was terrified of the night to come. Yeah. And I was so afraid of how bad it could get. And that was also a massive part of it. Yeah. And because do you think that that was because you had the, um, that the awareness of what this could be? Mm, yeah, it yeah, was. Okay. Certainly once the psychosis started, yeah. I was really afraid because yeah. I could clearly see that is two steps away. Yeah, that is, that's so Never coming back is two steps away from me. All yeah. I have to do, and I'll never forget it, it was this moment when, um, sorry to turn this back to me for a second, but I, I'll right. never forget it. There was a moment when I, when I got, when I got the day, everything was really, really frightening. The day it all kind of popped in my head. I managed to get to see my shrink. I yeah. managed to get to see him that afternoon. He could hear it in my voice. So I'll stay back for you. And I sat down and I told him what I was worried about. And then he started talking and in my head, I'm like, oh, fuck, mate, you're in on it. You're part of all this. You don't know, yeah. do you? You don't know. Oh, shit. And I thought to myself, if I go with that thought, I'm never coming back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Listen to what he has to say. Yeah. I was really lucky. Yeah. I was really lucky that I could have challenged that thought. And that you had that insight. I was yeah. so lucky. I was so lucky yeah. that I was able to observe that thought and not be it because it was as powerful a thought as take your hand off the hot plate, it's burning. Yeah. That's how visceral the reaction was. Yeah. Get out wow. now. He's part of it. I was so scared. Yeah. <laughs> but I was so much more scared of what could have been. Yeah. Uh, but it eventually was, but that's another thing that happened anyway, <laughs> but that's another story. Uh, so... So you're in the selective school. Things are incredible. We're living on the northern beaches, which is they call it God's country, and I get it. It's <laughs> it's, it's green. It's beautiful. There's lots of white people. It's it's you know it's, it's lovely up there. There's there's reef breaks and surf breaks and fishing and trees <laughs> and birds. Of white people. Come on. There yeah it is. There's lots of white people. Yeah there. yeah. <laughs> not a lot of art. Um. <laughs> not a lot of art. There is art if it's on a skateboard. Yeah. Um, there are some <laughs> artists that come from there. Ozzy Wright comes from there. Yeah. Um, Eli Fang comes from up there. There's a few, there's a few artists from up there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> Hence moving to the city. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so did were you able to get any, like when was the first time someone used the words mental illness around you? Uh Probably like not long after I started getting those really intense waves of sadness, um, it was I'd never experienced grief like that. Um, and I remember describing it as if somebody had died, like somebody had called me and told me my whole family was dead, um, which was really interesting because I'd never lost anyone before and yet that was what I like compared it to. And it was really, it was really funny because um, – my grandpa passed away when I was 21 and that was the first time I'd ever experienced someone close to me dying and it felt the same. And so somehow I'd yeah, known that this like really intense sadness, um, I'd compared it to that and it ended up being really similar. Um, and, uh, yeah, I saw a GP and she actually said, um, she was like, do you feel suicidal? And I was like, no, I don't think so. Um, I just feel really sad. Um and she told me to come back when I started feeling suicidal. What? Yeah. What the fuck? How bizarre is that? Um, That's not what an early intervention sounds like. No, <laughs> no. And I, I mean, I think what was so messy about this whole unraveling 
um, was that I didn't have any life experience and I didn't have any knowledge of what mental illness was. Um, I didn't even, I hadn't even heard of bipolar until I was diagnosed when I was 19. Um, and I think that's one thing that I think is really lacking um, in our school system is in PE, you know, when you're learning the whole like um, about sexual health and you're learning use condoms and don't do drugs and all of that. I never learned what bipolar was. Um, I never learned what psychosis or schizophrenia or any of that was. Um, we brushed over anxiety and depression and yeah. And I think that, that, that meant that I didn't have the knowledge to, I mean, I didn't have the yeah awareness to say to myself and none of my friends did either. Oh, your doctor's by the um, sounds of things. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody horrible. I know. It's so, bizarre. What? I had a few really, inter- like really bizarre experiences with doctors. Um, yeah, that was, that was the first. <laughs> but so you're in these horrible states of grief. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I totally understand it. Your brain just flicked the switch yeah. uh, in your head. It's just like a fuse that won't turn off. Yeah. And it's got no stimulus, but suddenly your body's feeling this reaction as if someone you love has died. Yeah, and your whole body just feels heavy. Right. Yeah. And it's got no cause at all, but you are living it. And yeah. And that then is- comes all the guilt around that of like my parents have given me this amazing upbringing and, mm. you know, have afforded me this incredible life and, um, you know, like I'm throwing it back at them and, mm. yeah. And you uh, – what kind of things were you trying to do to, to make it feel better yourself because doctors weren't helping you? Yeah. Um, oh, I, ended, I ended up self-harming self quite badly in like a few different ways Um which, yeah, I don't know if that will be triggering to anybody to like... I'll put a warning at the head. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I was like making myself sick. Um, and because like around this time when I was 17, I started um, having... I, I was actually misdiagnosed with major depression and pulled on antidepressants, which for bipolar is just exacerbates it. Um, and so I, ex- I was having these mixed state episodes and then eventually psychosis. Um, but it went undiagnosed because it like throughout those mixed state episodes I was still really sad so I had all of the kind of recklessness and and impulsiveness that you get when you are manic but it was still really mixed in with all of that sadness um so from the outside it looked like I was just um being reckless as a reaction to being really sad um and yes I was like I was making myself sick and then like I was hurting myself um and it that all kind of came from this psychotic episode where I felt like my skin was shrinking um, and it was sort of coming into my uh, or finding ways to alleviate that, um, yeah, which was quite horrible. So let's just – hang on. Let's turn this thing off. It's annoying me. Uh, the, um, sorry, my coffee machine tries to – just a thermostat clicks on and off. For someone who's mostly deaf – um, I didn't even hear that. Yeah. I think I am quite deaf. I know I'm. I'm mostly. If I actually should have been wanting my hearing aids today, um, but it's quite quiet in here. Uh, no, that sort of thing really. And things that rattle in the car. I just can't be. In, I'll pull the car over. I yeah. Can't deal with rattling things. So I just like to just back up just a little bit, just to yeah. help uh, folks who may not have you know uh, heard some of these things before yeah. understand a little bit more about it. Can you describe a mixed state episode? Yeah. So mixed state episode is essentially you have. Um, symptoms of depressed of a depressive episode mixed in with symptoms of a manic episode, which is um, extreme opposites of emotion. So, like the highest and most elated and energized you can possibly be, um, with 
the um, saddest and slowest and heaviest that you can be. Um, And so for me, I kind of had the energy and the recklessness and impulsiveness and the, this is a great idea. I'm going to do this right now. And I have no um, filter in what I'm saying. Um, I would get really angry, really angry and irritated because I felt like I was moving faster than everyone else. And I was, you know, already in the next conversation and people couldn't keep up with me. Um, But then I still had all of this, yeah, really intense sadness and hopelessness um, and really nihilistic thinking. Was it yeah directed at yourself? Was it in, internally directed at all? Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's funny, you know, because I've had people tell me that this was all in my head. Um, I mean, it's kind of ironic because it was in my head. You know, it's like a chemical imbalance in my head. Yeah. Um, but I think the people, uh, the thing that people don't get was mental illness. And I think you probably wouldn't get it unless you've experienced it. So, like, I'm sure you um, on the same wavelength with me, as me is you feel it in your body. Um, you know, like depression for me is a whole body experience. It's not thoughts that necessarily that are really sad. It's my whole body, like, aches. Um, yeah, just like when someone has died and, and you feel that in in everything, like it's in your limbs, your face feels heavy, it feels like it's, you know, your gravity just feels so much more profound and pronounced. Yeah. yeah. When you were in these uh, states of, as you mentioned, recklessness and impulsivity, did that, did that make you feel better for a second? Did it make you feel more in control? No, I was very out of control. Um, Yeah, it was kind of I'm having an idea and I'm acting on it in the next second. Um, But it's the way I would, you know, there's no drug I've ever taken that feels as freaking good. Yeah. (laughs) And we might get into this later on, but part of life on meds is, uh, you know, life used to feel like the plump, the initial plummet of a roller coaster yeah. all the time. It's yeah. utterly unsustainable, but fuck, it's exciting. It is. And I know, and, it's, and since then I've had, um, yeah, like a few really amazing manic episodes. Um, and it, like the medication that I'm on, I've managed to, um, like I haven't gone low in about two years, um, but the mania kind of like slips through uh-huh. much easier. I kind of break through and go high much easier than I ever go low. Um, and it's like being on drugs. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, part of, uh, I don't know if I'm going to piss anyone off or if this is weird for you to hear, but part of me kind of, I kind of miss. Yeah. Kind of, because like once you've seen the world, at that pace, yeah. once you've, it's like driving through a school zone at 200 kilometres an hour. It's so fucking dangerous and so yeah. scary, but it, it, you know, it's like when you when back in the day before there were bypasses, you would actually have to slow down from 100 down to 40 to go through a town yeah. and then go up to 100 again. And then when you slow down to 40, you're like, man, this, this like, is I could slow. walk faster yeah. than this. Yeah. But that's life now. Yeah. And it's okay because I can handle it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm able to have a family and, and a life and a career. Yeah. Part of me sometimes I kind of miss what it was like. Yeah. It's kind of no, weird. I get that. I get that for but sure. But I, I know now that I, I just can't do that again though. Yeah. I can't. It's too dangerous. Yeah. And I, I can't sustain it. Yeah. And the way that I was dealing with it, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, you can't live like that. No, I absolutely, yeah. absolutely can't. 
So when you when you were in those periods, you, you describe a period of about two years um, from you know from the age of seventeen to the age of nineteen. Um, was there was there any self medication going on? Because I mean, for me, I just used what was handy, which was booze, and there was lots of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I wasn't. I was like had been self harming for a point um, of that, but I. I was in like in and out of hospital for those two years. Mm. Um, so it was bad enough that you would be hospitalized. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, what was that like? Um, it was. It, I kind of describe it as um, it was like you know, like an emergency relief. Um, you know, like a pop up shelter after a hurricane um, where everybody's out of their homes and they all get put into this like community center where there's like a bed and food and safety and a temporary relief. And I feel like that's what hospital was for me. It was just kind of to contain um, me. And I ended up doped up on the wrong medication. Um, And when I was finally put on the right medication and diagnosed with the right thing, my mom said to me that it was as if she'd been talking to someone that was drunk for two years and um, she was finally having a sober conversation with me again. What was it like for her when her her daughter is because at seventeen, eighteen, you're still you're still a kid. Yeah, you yeah. can go to the army and go to jail and vote and stuff, but yeah. you're still a kid. Yeah. I what was. was it like for your mum? Oh, it was horrible for my family. It really, yeah, put so much pressure on on my family, and this like strain kind of tore us apart. But we somehow still stayed together. I'm not sure. It was. Yeah, I mean, it just killed my parents because, you know, their girl is – there was a um, something inside of me that was hurting the person that they loved. And, um, like, at one point I thought that I was dead and I thought that – like, I was – and I was telling my parents, like, that girl, your daughter, she's gone and you just need to accept that. Like, just let me go. Um and I had fully lost sight of myself and I'm just so lucky that my parents never accepted that and that they still saw me even if I didn't see myself and that they didn't give up until they, you know, brought me back from that. Yeah. On, on the outside, sitting at my table and if you don't want to talk about this, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're here, we're, you can see the ocean out the window, there's a nice cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, for someone whose only relationship to psychosis is something they've seen in a horror movie... How would you describe psychosis to them? Uh, I think, I mean, for me, um, it was like, it's. I feel like it's when your body sort of betrays you. Um, so the most recent psychotic episode I had was um, maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago. Um, yeah, probably coming up to two years ago. And it was, I'd been stable for a year and a half Um, And I was at a party and somebody offered me a drag of a joint and that was it, like one tiny drag. And within um, two, within six weeks I was in hospital and I felt like um, I'd I'd gone back into thinking that my, or feeling like my skin was shrinking. And then I felt like, um, I felt like my mum and my sister were out to get me um, and that they were kind of conspiring against me and that they um, were just pretending to love me but they didn't. And it it's so bizarre because in my mind I was like, this isn't real, this is, you know, like you're losing it, this isn't real. But my body 
totally betrayed that and my body you know I had I'd tense up when they came into the room because I my body yeah I had this like gut feeling that uh, that's what it is it's like I think when your gut feeling doesn't marry with reality um and so yeah my parents I mean my mom and my sister would be in the same room as me and I'd get all tense and um yeah as if I was ready to like defend myself um and then, yeah, just feeling really sad and hopeless, but feeling that in my body and feeling like my body was aching and I just needed to mm. get out of that, um, which is such a dangerous place to be. And, yeah, I remember I went into hospital and I got put on this antipsychotic and I was kind of very out of it for a few days. And then it was as if somebody, it was as if I'd had a broken arm for six weeks and somebody had just corrected it. And I was like, oh that feels fine, that feels good. And my mum and sister came, you know, came into the room and came into the hospital to see me and I was just relaxed around them and I was like, yeah, my, like, I feel normal again. Of course you love me. Like how, could, how did my body think that you didn't? Um, yeah, and it's just, you know, kind of like returning to that place of just feeling good. And that doctor was amazing because he tracked my history um, and he kind of said, like, said a really similar thing to what you were talking about before, you know, like psychotic episodes where you don't come back for them. And he just said, look, the next time you think you're going good and you're in your early 20s and you're at a party and people are, you know, doing drugs or whatever and you think, oh, yeah, this this might be fun, like everyone else is doing it, I'll be fine. Um, he was like you have to associate what that looks like with how you feel when your skin is shrinking. He was like, that connection has to be so clear in your mind because you, one day you might not come back from that. And that just, you know, really, I've just got it. Um, and I like haven't done, I haven't done anything since. Um, mm. And it's just so solid in my mind, that connection. Yeah. Um, and I'm like amazing that he gave that to me because yeah, my, my mind, may never, yeah, might not have ever come back. From your perspective as someone, as, as a visual artist, as someone who creates uh, images that um, ask you as a viewer to uh, ob- observe a, a reality created from within your brain to someone who writes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Where you're asking the author, the, the reader, to invent a reality in their head of what you're describing. Yeah. And as someone who has been on both sides of reality. Yeah. Uh, in that your body's reacting to a reality that isn't there, as if it were. Yeah. 
What are your thoughts about what we as humans make of the world? That's interesting. Um, because I'll, I'll, to, to expand, like yeah. most people um, hear a barking dog charging at them, yeah. they will feel afraid and they go, that's totally fine. I'm reacting in the way that this barking dog, the reality of this barking dog, yeah. I'm making it mean that I'm in danger, my body's making it mean I'm in danger, therefore I'm in danger. Yeah. And, you know, fine, everything's fine. But once those two things tend to not to, 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 to marry up, yeah. once you're getting one reaction without the other or once you're seeing the barking dog where there is no barking dog yeah. or once a person may resemble the barking dog, um, you know, when you think about the construct that we make as humans, yeah. I guess, what are, your, what are your thoughts as to, you know, how people go through this world, um, people with regular brains? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like I kind of can't put myself in yeah. their position because, um, I don't know, I guess my brain isn't regular. But I think their ability to kind of go somewhere else that, um, yeah, like you said, you can go to that place without the real-life event that should be taking you there. I think it means that you, I mean, for me, creatively, um, I've been able to draw on that experience um, and people relate to that. Uh, one of my favourite authors, David Mitchell, said that novels are assemblages of opposites and I think that's so true to bipolar because, you know, you experience these extreme opposites and it means that um, I can tap into those emotions and that emotional experience even if I've never had the life experience to take me there. And, you know, that emotion is human and it's universal and so people will relate to that and you know bring their own experience to that and connect with it so I think from that point of view um yeah I mean I think it's quite special in a way right. I'm not sure if I no no no, no, no that, that's fine I, I don't know if I was really asking a question I've just been thinking about it a lot lately I've been yeah. thinking a lot about what as humans separates us from other things on this planet yeah. and that as humans we're able to construct stories um, yeah, stories. And and that's the thing that sets us apart, that I can enrol you in the story of you should come on out to, you know, drive all the way out to Bronte yeah. and and come on, be on this thing that, you know, these two microphones and there's one recorder are going to sit here and people on trains and working out and cleaning the house will listen to it yeah. and they will feel the feeling if we have this conversation. And you go, that sounds like a good idea. I'll be there at 10. Yeah. All right. But none of that is actually happening right now. Like those conversations, those people hearing this conversation won't happen for another a week or so. Yeah. So you're enrolled in this theoretical idea, basically. Yeah. Is that, is that, does that make sense? Like yeah, how, I love that. How, <laughs> you know, but basically how we as humans are able to enrol each other in uh, something that doesn't exist at this very point. Yeah. Whether that be something from the past or something in the future to inspire action. Yeah. And I, I, find I love that, that. I mean, I've always been... Um, really fascinated by these like rich tapestries that we have and it's like you know us meeting today you're now kind of sewn into my story and I'm sewn into yours and yeah I love these like connections that we have and these people that are listening in a week's time um, or sometimes in a year like yeah. people will still, listen, still sit on the internet for as long as I can afford to keep those yeah. feet up. <laughs> um, yeah and I like I like that you know and it might be one thing that we say um, will then become part of someone's story and, you know, they reiterate that and then that becomes part of someone else's story. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's I pretty really like well. That. <laughs> <laughs> what was like what was it like when you finally felt that there was a diagnosis that you went, Oh, that's it? Yeah, I think it was like um just the clouds parting and being just like, Oh my god, there's the sun, there's the sky, this makes sense, there are the stars, I can orient myself again. Um yeah, just the clarity. Um and a real sense of validation, I think, um, of, yeah, like this, um, what you're feeling is real, um, was, yeah, what I really got from, from that and that other people share this, you know, other people have shared this experience. Um, you're not alone in that. Yeah. So it was really good. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like you had a couple of doctors that didn't, that missed the chance yeah. To, to be there for you. What did it feel like to have a doctor that seemed to be there at the right time with the right ideas? Um, again, I think it was just really validating um, and it was so, it was just amazing to finally not be confused by that anymore, um, to, yeah, really feel like I was making sense of things. And I ended up with I don't know. I was actually talking about it with my friend this morning. It kind of catapulted me into this state of self-awareness where I felt like, well, nothing's safe. Um, so I may as well be doing what I love. And it really gave me this focus from a very young age. You know, when I was like 19, I um, deferred uni to um, start writing. And I had all of these people, um, like a lot of people in my life saying, you know, it's going to be really hard, almost impossible to make a living out of writing. But I think what people didn't get was that I was finally living in this way that I hadn't lived in a long time. Um, and yeah, it was like, it was just, I had this focus where I was like, I know what I'm here to do and I know what makes me tick and I know what makes me feel good. Um, and yeah, like this really strong sense of self. And then that kind of over the last few years is just solidified. Um, yeah, to the point where now, I mean, this year, um, for the last six months, I'm like very recently single. And that, I think, I've never been so aware um, of bipolar and of my moods as I have been this year. And I think it's because I haven't had somebody around me to sort of like taper those feelings. Um, and I haven't had someone around me as kind of this, you know, this shield, I guess, between me and the world. And Um, being with that person was so important for those, you know, um, years. Cause like I was with them when, when I found out that, um, that I did have bipolar and it was, it was amazing to have somebody that loved me unconditionally and felt, um, you know, I felt really safe in that. But at the same time, it's also been a massive learning experience, but also quite amazing to have or to feel emotion and have it be completely mine and um, to feel sad and sit with that sadness and to, yeah, to kind of own it and to like own that emotion. Sorry if I've gone off track. No, no, it's fine. So I was going to ask about, about that. Yeah. As a, you know, as a, as a young person, there's hormones everywhere and, you know, (laughs) sometimes, you know, you, you you make silly decisions anyway uh, when you, when you're a young person, but you know, when you 
when you met this person that you were with, sounds like it was a fairly long-term relationship. Yeah, you, four and a half years. Were you able to explain, hey, by the way, I'm Sophie and this is what goes on in my head or did you not know or? Um, it was interesting. Like I still, they, they weren't, the doctors weren't really sure what was going on with me um, when I did meet him. But kind of through throughout, I think, yeah, it was probably like six months in, I had this huge relapse when I was with him. Um, so he saw it all firsthand. And that was amazing to to have somebody, you know, kind of like back me anyway. Um, and, yeah, and so, yeah, and so I did find out and then I got the right diagnosis while I was with him. Um, and he was amazing because he's probably the only person that I've ever met that got it without ever experiencing him it himself. Like I've had a lot of people in my life, um, you know, be really empathetic and come close to understanding it, but he just got it. Like yeah. he, I don't know, he just, whether it was because we were so close or I'm not sure, he just, he and he knew how to balance me and to kind of, you know, bring me back to the middle no matter which way I was going. And so, yeah, a massive learning curve this year has been being able to figure out how to do that for myself. Four and a half years, that's going to hurt. Did you feel that you were able to feel heartbreak like other people feel heartbreak? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it was really interesting. I was quite high, um, not on drugs, <laughs> quite um, manic sort of at the beginning of this year, which is when I broke up with him. Um, and so my grief was quite delayed. It wasn't really until I came, yeah, sort of like out of that manic period um or out of that episode sort of like maybe three or four months later um and it was like what you were saying before you know you slow down to 40 kilometers per hour and it's like wow I could you know like I forgot what it's like to be normal and to be walking at the same pace as everyone else and um and yeah did kind of wake up to that um or yeah did start feeling heartbreak and start feeling grief um but I also just deep down kind of had this really solid feeling um, that it was bright. I don't know. It just kind of sat with me. Um, and it was, yeah, it was sad for sure, but it also, you know, in still and quiet moments, I just sort of sat with that feeling and I was like, this is, this is okay. Yeah. It's it, well, they're both heartbreak, heartache. They're actual words that describe the physical pain you feel when you yeah, do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, stop being in a long-term relationship yeah um, and, and you know it's your best friend and you miss yeah. them and it's a person that's completely gone out of yeah. their life now I guess I'm, that that might be just earlier we were describing what it was to feel an emotional pain in your body yeah um, that might be the most relatable one I think that most people would have felt that actual you yeah. know, it actually hurts just yeah. to the right of my left nipple like yeah. it actually hurts there yeah there's nothing physically wrong with me, but yeah. because this person is no longer in my house and their stuff isn't here, yeah. it hurts right there. Yeah, that's weird. No. Um, and I kind of, I and I've never had it before. I mean, it's kind of like you know, just in moments where I stop at a traffic light or um, I'm like going to brush my teeth or you know these these like really still quiet moments, and I feel like my chest kind of goes. Um, I don't know if you heard. No, no, no. <laughs> You'll hear that on the microphone, but it's. Um, it's just like this really, really subtle tightening. Um, and just for that moment, it feels like that little bit harder to breathe. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that sounds like a terrible cliche, but it just is like this really subtle tightening. And I kind of go, and then it 
dissipates again. Yeah. And and then like I'm breathing normally. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of grabs you in these like weird moments. And I think, yeah, I guess that's what grief does. It kind of comes in these waves and yeah. and it really catches you when you're not expecting it. Yeah. About about three weeks ago, my mum passed away. Oh, and, sorry. Uh, the flowers. Um, <laughs> and I describe it as when you're at the carousel with a kid. Yeah. And you're standing there by the carousel. They come here, they come, get the camera ready, get the camera ready. Oh, there it is. Oh, there they go, there they go, there they go, there they go. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I can feel it coming. Yeah. And then it peaks for a second and then it just goes away again. Yeah. And I don't know when it's going to come again. Yeah. But it doesn't, it, that's what it's like now. There was a time in my life when it would be like, no, the carousel's just not moving. And yeah. you're staring, you know, into this like gaping horse mouth, frightened, you know, yeah. for, for days and you can't move and that's all you can see. Um when were you so as because when I met Audrey, I pretty much and it must have freaked people out when I was trying to you know uh, date them uh, before I met Audrey. So I'd be just like, oh, "Hi, I'm Usher, and I've got this thing in my brain, and I've got it, and I'm on drugs." <laughs> you know, like in the first set, it yeah. would come out. It would come out. Yeah. Oh, I've got social anxiety and general anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, do you like? Are you? dating at all are you able to like go out and have a coffee with someone and say oh by the way this is what happens yeah well this is super i found this really interesting this year um yeah because i I mean i have been dating and i've um it's really funny i've been kind of um so much more conscious of it and actually quite self-conscious um and i think when when i brought out my first book which is like about these experiences um so many people were coming up to me like, oh, wow, you're so, like, brave for doing this. And I never felt like I was brave because it never frightened me. Like, I never um, I never felt like it was something that I shouldn't talk about and I wasn't self-conscious about it at all. And it, it's quite kind of taken me by surprise this year how, um, yeah, sort of self-conscious I've been about it um, to the point where, uh, you know, like, people are like, what do you do? And I'm saying, oh, I'm an author. Oh, okay, what have you written? And I'm... And I only really talk about my second book. I'm like, oh, I write, um, you know, the older end of young adult fiction and um, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, what was your first book about? And I'm like, oh, it was a memoir. It was a brother. <laughs> like, um, yeah, and I've, I've been really self-conscious about it. And, um, yeah, that's really taken me by surprise. Um, and I think maybe it's because, yeah, when I was diagnosed, I was in this really um, like beautiful relationship and somebody loved me unconditionally and I felt really safe in that. Um, and then, yeah, this year has kind of, I've like kind of danced around mm. around it. And, um, but at the same time, there's, you know, a book out there about it. And so like, I have been um, like dating people this year that have then um, like, turned up and been like, oh, by the way, I read your book. <laughs> I know all about it now. Um, well, at least I've done their research. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's interesting with what you described about that you enjoy exploring this by yourself. Yeah. When I started seriously seeing Audrey, there was, um, and not that I and I always try as hard as I can not to lean on her as if she is a, a lotion or a salve or, or yeah. some sort of... Um, uh, alleviation um, that I absolutely can't live without because I would never want to burden someone with that. Yeah. But there was such relief of like even so much as like waking up 
with the fears in the middle of the night and then just reaching out and, and just the groundingness of just reaching out and, oh, there she is yeah. in bed. Okay, all right. What's it feel like when my skin touches her skin? Okay, oh, I'm back in the room. Okay, cool. Yeah. Like, because I was alone with that for so long, you know, and um, to have someone around was the opposite of what you just said. I was like, oh, yeah. so nice. <laughs> so nice. But again, I'm very careful not to. Sometimes I lean on, like in the last couple of weeks, I've been leaning on her quite a bit, but yeah, I, I think understandable. it's understandable. Um, and I think that's understandable, you know, re- mm. regardless of like these. Um, these like kind of demons you faced, mm. um, you know, that's, that's so normal to, to lean on someone in a time like that. Mm. Tell me about when you first, I mean, did you always write? Yeah. Um, for as long as I can remember, I actually, um, I mean, I was telling stories even before I knew how to write. So um, when I was four or five, I'd talk to my mom and I'd tell her these stories and then she'd type them up and print them out for me and then I'd do all the little drawings and things with them. Um, and so then they were like my first books. And then when I was 10, I wrote um, like my first book by hand um, and it was you know, it was about this girl and she lives with, uh, she um, hanging out with the boys in her street skateboarding. So, I mean, it was like totally reflecting where I was in my life. And then it, that book kind of got reincarnated when I was 14 and then when I was 15 and then eventually when I was 20 and that's what ended up being published, um, yeah, as a novel. Um, and, yeah, yeah, I think I've always journaled. Um, I have like a very... Um, I love moleskins, this like one brand of journals. One of my favorites. Yeah, and it's like a really expensive habit. So I've bought three huge moleskins and like filled them up in the last two months. Um, and as a uni student, I kind of like eating tuna and crackers. I'm, um, um, yeah, sacrifice sort of like my um, like groceries to be able to <laughs> afford my moleskins. Um, but yeah, I, um, yeah, I've always written. Um, and it's funny, it's the one thing that I can do no matter where my head's at. It's like always brings me back to the centre. Um, yeah, and super grounding. And it's it's really helped me, I think, to work through a lot of like a lot of things. And um, this next novel that I've just started, I think it's gonna push into adult fiction now as I'm getting older and having some adult ideas. Um, and it was really interesting because it's about um, it's fiction, but it's I'm really interested in um, the kind of spectrum of sex for young women. And you have you know something that's very black and white sexual assault at one end, and making love at the other end, and all of this grey area in between. And I started having all of these questions last year for my character, um, and I hate to think that it, you know I made this huge life decision with my ex partner um for like creative (laughs) experience but um, if you did you wouldn't be the first yeah well I kind of got to the point where I was like all these questions that I have for my character Maddie a lot of it I don't even know for myself um and yeah I really wanted to learn that and I felt like a lot of these things were things that I could only learn on my own um and yeah I guess I feel like now I can sort of write and do about all of these experiences from a really authentic place. Um, yeah, instead of kind of hypothesizing what that would feel like. Yeah. But it's good. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Because <laughs> I can only imagine growing up in 
knowing what I know about surf culture and my experience of touring with the pro tour for a little while as covering yeah. it and, you know, being around people who were a part of the surf industry, it's such a male-dominated society and yeah. female sexuality is in one spectrum and one spectrum only. Yeah. Um, and it's submissive mm. from my experience. Yeah. Um, so if you were growing up around that, I could only imagine, you know, that hang on, there's another way to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, oh, what, sex can feel good for women? Like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is groundbreaking. It can. Yeah. It um, can. Uh, yeah. I think that was that was that was a big. I yeah, I had a weird relationship with sex for a long time. A very weird relationship with sex. Yeah. Where does journaling fit in, in in your day? Um, where is it? I've got my notebook in my bag right now. Um, it's kind of just I guess ideas. Um, it's usually quite abstract. I'm not journaling. Um, you know, today I went to uni and I did a painting. Um, it's yeah, sort of like abstract ideas that that I have. Um, yeah, I just, I love words. Um, and I find I write a lot better than I can speak. <laughs> Why does it help to get the thoughts out of your head? Um, I think it's, you know, it's just having this idea materialise maybe in the real world. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, there's just something about it that makes sense. Um, that maybe it doesn't when it's this loose idea floating around in my head, but on the page it, it can make sense. Um, Once you see it on the page, do you, do you get a sense of completion, a sense of that idea, I've dealt with that idea now? Yeah, a little bit, I think. Um, I don't know, I'm not explaining this very well. I don't, I don't really know how to explain this. Um, it's just things just make sense. Um, and I also really enjoy it. Um, I'd love sort of, yeah, having these things become words on a page, these marks on a page and, um, and yeah, I don't know, I just really like it. And sometimes I'm a bit surprised, like, oh, that actually sounds quite good. <laughs> Is it the same when you, when you paint? Um, no. Um, I think writing for me, I kind of feel like I have original ideas that really come from, um, a really imaginative place and maybe that's to do with that, um, you know, being in another reality like what we were talking about before, whereas I find with painting I really enjoy the physical act of painting um, and it is it is a kind of mindfulness. I sort of get lost in that, that movement of my body um, and the pain and I love the body of the paint, whereas um, when I'm writing I feel like it really writes itself um, and I'm almost entertained by these stories because because all of these plot twists and everything the characters say and do is just as exciting and surprising for me as it is for anyone else that's reading it. So I want to write the next chapter. Because Frankie, <laughs> what is your problem? <laughs> Hang on. What are you doing, buddy? But when you're painting, it's different. You don't feel that it's as like original it's, or as... Yeah, I feel kind of like I'm taking something from the real world and putting it on a canvas, but I don't feel like there's as much of me in that. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Whereas that, whereas when I'm writing, I feel like that's it's doing it on its own. So, and is going to art school uh, besides the technical of it, technicalities of here's this technique, here's that technique, here's how to use this particular machine, here's how to yeah. you know, replicate it with that. Um, is going to art school a way because I don't really know too much about art school. Is going to art school a way to help you unlock that channel to the authenticity? Is there is there much of that in art school? Yeah, I mean, I, like I'm at Sydney College of the Arts and it's very um, open to, like I'm in the painting studio, for instance, this year and I'm um, making a sound installation. Um, I have synesthesia, so I see colour with sound. Really? Yeah. Your whole life? Yeah, my whole life. Um and so I, I did a resident, an art residency. So was Frankie's barking just then really weird for you? That <laughs> no, was all right. Um, did do you see colours when he barks? Yeah, a little bit. Really? Yeah. What colours are? What colour is his barking? Um, it's quite um, dark, like a but it's sort of like a muddy maroon colour. Yeah, you little Queenslander. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, whereas um, oh, sorry, I did an art residency in Antarctica in February and I heard this sound of this glacier carving um, and so I'm trying to recreate that sound um, and I'm doing it by trying to match um, sounds that my friend and I, who's a music producer, are finding. I'm trying to match the colour of that sound, of the sounds that he's finding with the sound that I heard in Antarctica. So it's kind of like a sound painting, yeah. I guess. Um, and that's really fun. I'm like really enjoying that. And I think what I like about uni um, is, you know, being in, I love being in an academic environment and really stretching my mind and being stimulated by these like quite out there ideas and philosophers and all of that. But I really like being able to explore what I can say with painting that I can't say with words. Um so, I mean, I guess it, it, there are, like, parts of it that are, um, yeah, probably authentic and quite original, but I really like um, I like the physical act of painting yeah. and getting lost in that. Yeah. Tell me more about the synesthesia. How old were you when you said, Mum, why is that orange <laughs> or whatever? Um, when was it? It was probably when I was 10 or 11 um, and I heard someone talking about synesthesia, about seeing, no, uh, seeing colours with numbers and I was like, I have that. Doesn't everyone have that? Um, and, yeah, it was only finding out about what that was that I realised that not everyone does that. Um, That's got to be confusing later on when you are trying to deal with, um, you know, a, a, a brain-distorting reality <laughs> that there's colour as well. Well, I wonder how much of it is connected. Yeah, I don't know. Possibly. I'm, I imagine so. Yeah. Wow. And so it's do like people, with people. Yeah. People have colours. Um yeah, words, sounds, um, some flavors have colors. Wow. Yeah. Does it does it ch- like does is it like putting a filter over a camera lens? Does everything turn red or? No, it's it's um, no, it's it's not like you know I'm sitting in this room and suddenly your kitchen is looking red because I'm seeing a I mean hearing a sound that's red. Um, it's kind of like you can be staring at me right now and you can see your childhood home, you know, you're imagining it even though the, the our, this kitchen that we're sitting in isn't turning into your childhood room. It's like I can see the colour even though I'm staring at you and you're still uh-huh. normal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Is there any visual representation that you've seen that comes the closest to going, oh, yeah, that's what it's like that we could look at and go, oh. Uh, 
Well, I mean, for my for this sound installation that I'm doing this year, I'm painting the colour. So I'm painting a room the colour that I heard and so you'll sit in that with these headphones on listening to the sound okay. and be surrounded by the colour of that sound in my head. Fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> but I, do, I can do a few weird things. Like, So, for instance, with my left hand, I can write better in mirrored image than I can write forwards and in my right hand I can write better forwards than I can in mirror image. Um, and that was, again, something that um, I was, I didn't realise that that was abnormal until I broke my wrist, I broke my right wrist and then I was having to write with my left hand and it was, you know, like almost the same. But it feels much more natural to write in mirror image. That was Da Vinci's thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, actually that's when I figured out that, um, that the mirror image thing, so... I read the Da Vinci Code and there's one part of it where um, the, one of the clues that they find is written in mirror image. And so I um, got to that part of the book and just kept reading and then I got to, you know, after this note and the characters are saying, oh, what does that say? Um, how do we know? What does this mean? What does this script mean? And I was thinking, what do they mean? Like, what do you mean? I just read it. Like, it makes sense. Um, and then I realised that it was backwards and that I, my mind hadn't even seen that. All yeah. I'd seen was the text and I just read it as if yeah. it was forwards. Um, Clearly you've got a few superpowers going on. <laughs> a sixth sense. Well, um, you do. I mean, you can see, see colours out of sounds, which is extraordinary. And you happen to be a visual artist as well as an author, so that's you know. Smart. <laughs> it all it all kind of comes smart together very it. well. <laughs> smart use of it. Uh, tell me about Antarctica. I mean, it's in the news for horrible reasons this week, but yeah. tell me about Antarctica. Um, it really changed my life. Um, it just changed me. I think. Um, so before the, the most recent, um, this, this scholarship that I got, um, this residency that I did, Ken Doan had, had done it the year before and I spoke to him at, at the opening of his exhibition. What sweater he, did he take to Antarctica? <laughs> <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible Ken Doan joke. <laughs> but I really want him to be in one of those sweaters down with the pants. Yeah. That would have been awesome. Um, he, I remember I was, saying, so I was talking to him at the opening for his exhibition that he did off the back of his residency and um, and he was saying, um, he was like, this landscape will change you. And I remember thinking, um, you know, really, like, how is this going to, how is a place going to change me? And not only that, I, then I was thinking, well, who am I right now and how am I going to be different? Um, and going down there, there was, a, there was a few things that I think really, um, I think going down there I was freshly single and it was the first time I'd ever been um, travelling overseas without someone back home and that really allowed me to kind of immerse myself in this landscape and I think it is such a uniform landscape that you're kind of absorbed into it and um, time down there is really different. So, um, you know, it takes these glaciers I don't know, millions of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to move down mountains. They're frozen rivers. And um, and then you're standing on top of it, on top of this ancient ice, and it just reduces your whole life to a heartbeat. And then that made me think, it kind of like galvanised my, um, like I've always been really um, kind of, um, 
I'm not going to say interested in environmental activism, but like I've always been very active in environmental activism. Um, and that really galvanised um, not only what I want to do to work towards a sustainable future, but also it just made me think like I have this tiny little heartbeat. What am I going to do with it? Like how am I going to make this worthwhile and what am I going to contribute? Um, and then also so I jumped into the water and it was zero what? degrees. <laughs> I jumped into the water, like, in between icebergs. Jesus. Um, and salt water doesn't freeze at zero. It freezes no, below zero. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, um, my God. And that would have been so painful. It, well, I mean, the funny thing is you get this insane shot of adrenaline, um, so much so that I almost didn't feel the cold. Um, and I remember being, I dived underwater and um, it was so dark and just endless and I came up and I took in this breath and I could feel every single one of my ribs moving. And I was just like, <gasps> and I could feel that oxygen going to every part of my body. Um, and I've never been so acutely aware of my body. And that really um, changed my physical um, like sense of where I am in this world. Um, and, I mean, the, the other thing that was, I think, the most that changed me the most was um, the scale of the landscape. It just makes you think, where do I sit in the universe? Like, where is this? And, yeah, this one night that I spent sleeping on the ice and during the middle of the night, I mean, it was it was daylight because it's the middle of summer, but, um, to, yeah, around like 2 or 3 in the morning, um, I heard this glacier carving and I'd expected the silence in Antarctica to be really beautiful and really romantic and it was quite terrifying. Um, I remember lying there and it was so quiet that I could almost like hear my blood pumping inside me and um, and I was coughing and making all these sounds in my sleeping bag just to check that my ears were still working because I honestly felt like I'd gone deaf and then I heard this glacier carving and it was just like the earth making itself heard and I've always been someone I would like to think that has been very connected to the world around me, um, to the ocean and to the trees. And I've always felt really, um, yeah, sometimes probably more connected to um, like nature. I mean, I don't like saying nature because I don't like a kind of that dichotomy between nature and culture. Um, but yeah, to the non-human, I've always felt really connected to non-human landscapes. And so I, and that's what I'm writing about this year at uni. That's what my thesis is about. Um, and kind of the way that we've um, insulated ourselves from the non-human world to the point where, you know, you get, you're in the outback and it's really frightening and, you know, anxiety inducing because you have insulated yourself from that landscape to the point where something that should be, we should be innately a part of, um, and connected to somehow feels foreign now. And so I, you know, like those humanist hierarchies where we see ourselves as being separate to the non-human, I'm writing about that and I still had this experience of being totally at sea with myself um, where, you know, I was confronted by this non-human sound and that just threw out everything where I was like where where do I sit where do I sit in relation to other things um and that was awesome 
It was really cool. Frightening, but really cool. And that kind of, yeah, dissolved my idea of who I was and then um, really had to sort of piece that back together. And I think the, you know, the, what I was talking about with ancient ice and I find it so heartbreaking. Yes, but yeah, especially you said that um, Antarctica, Antarctica has been dominating the news this week and it's so it should because it's seriously under threat. And, um, I yeah, I don't know. It's a, Just to rewind it for a second, tell me about, I mean, you mentioned Outback Australia, which is the closest I've got to reference what yeah. you're talking about. Uh, this feeling besides the road that I'd driven into this particular place on, there was, if I turned away from the road and I looked, I could, to the horizon, I could see no other human made yeah. object, that there was nothing all around me. And I found myself whispering, mm. even though I was the only human for probably 100 kilometres in each direction. Um, tell me about the, you mentioned the scale. Was there a feeling of insignificance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and this landscape is so old. Um, there's moss that you stand on and if, I didn't stand on it, but, you know, if you did, um, your footstep will still be there in 2,000 years. Um, and so it was really bizarre. It kind of, it not only made me feel insignificant, but it made the human race feel insignificant. You know, I was kind of standing there in front of this mountain that's just jutting up out of the ocean and it was kind of looking at it and thinking, you know, if Jesus was standing here, um, he would have seen the exact same thing. Or, you know, um, a caveman 50,000 years ago, if he was standing here, he would have seen the same thing. And it's then, yeah, it kind of reduced not only um, me to this tiny little heartbeat, but it just made the whole of humanity feel like this tiny little, like, blip in the, yeah, in the grand scale of things. But we really are. We really we are. are. We have this idea we that we're so are. important. Yeah. But it's that classic moment from the opening episode of Carl Sagan's Cosmos where yeah. like if the history of the universe from the Big Bang to now or a clock, we appear at like three seconds to midnight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like really, that's the, the first time we, we crawled out of the – it's, you know, and to try and keep that in – try keep that scale in in mind yeah. that we we buzz like flies that live for four days yeah. around this planet as far as the planet's concerned. Yeah. As far as the planet's concerned, like, oh, oh this will be over soon. Like, it doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, in, in, the words of, um, in, the, in the words of George Carlin, it's like it's not the, not the planet that's fucked. The planet will be fine. We are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the planet will just cough a, cough a few times and spit us out. And yeah. Then, you know, another billion years will pass and no one will care. Yeah. There will be no one to care. Yeah. And it will be completely different. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we are utterly insignificant. In that space of – so to, to try and turn a corner and leave on a high um, – <laughs> In that space of um, I'm just this tiny little, uh, um, you know, ventricle in my heart pumping and there's a little valve opening and shutting to keep yeah. this tiny little body alive on this vast nothingness, mm. where then do you find your next step? Which direction does it take you? 
I think it's this, this realization that, um, yes, I am tiny and seemingly insignificant in the grand scheme of um, things, but I feel things and I've loved people and I've been loved and, um, and I make things and that is significant. Um, and so, yeah, we have this like reduction down there, but then also this real sense of kind of like a, an elastic band stretched out and snapping back and just thinking, yeah, but all of these things that I do and the people that I engage with and the people that engage with me and these stories, um, they're something and they're real and that's what we live for and I think that's what we, yeah, we're here for. Mm. Um, and so that was really awesome. That was really cool. If someone's <laughs> listening to this and they relate it to any part of your journey, not necessarily, well, any part of your journey, but particularly the part where you got you got sick, yeah. what would you say to them? To be patient, I think. Um, because there, you know, there was a time when I felt like that was going to last forever and that I would never leave that really dark place. But nothing lasts forever. You know, we're in a constant state of flux and everything changes. And just as easily as it can go to shit, it can come back. And, yeah, nothing lasts forever and you will come out of that. You just have to be patient. Yeah. <laughs> Are you laughing at me? No, I love it. This is really <laughs> sweet. It's really sweet. Um, when do you leave for Oxford? Um, in December. Yeah. So uh, I, I start studying in January, but I leave in December. It's good that you're arriving in winter. Too many people go to the go to Europe to live in the summer and go. This is but great. This Things is are amazing. amazing. Wow! <laughs> I'll just go to Spain and it'll be warm. Not fuck. Sun's been up for three hours today. <laughs> <laughs> it's dark all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. This is one thing that I'm trying really hard at the moment to do is to be present um, because I think it would be way too easy for me to just already have my mind there. Um, so I have to really enjoy what I'm doing this year and be here and be happy with this for now and not be, you know, counting down the days and counting down the hours until I get there. So wonderful. How long will you be there? Um, I'm a visiting scholar for a year. Um and then after that, I'm not sure what I'll do. Well, wonderful though. Yeah. Wonderful to be immersed in that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm most excited for. You know, I'm going to be living um, on college at Oxford with all of these different people that are studying all different things and um, I'm just so excited for, like, where my mind will go. It'll be like your share house times a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> because everyone's there of that particular level. Yeah, and I just feel like... Um, There'll be no, everyone will be smart. Yeah. Um, and that would be really cool, I think. Excellent. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you do with it, even if it's just to enjoy it and be with it. Yeah. That'll be great. I can't wait to talk to you when you come back. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming around. Thank you for having me. I'm just going to take your photo really real quick, okay? Sure. Cool. That was Sophie Hardcastle. Find her on Instagram at S-O-P-H-I-E underscore Hardcastle. Let her know you heard her on the show. Thank you so much for being here. If this is your first episode, welcome. There's 189 other episodes to explore if you're new. Thanks so much for coming. Jeez, we're 10 off 200. What are we going to do for 200, guys? 
What should I do? Let me know. <laughs> Let me know. Thank you so much for listening. Good luck for the week ahead. Take care of your brains, whether they be fairly normal brains or fairly different brains. Whatever you got given, do what you got to do to deal with it so you can get the best chance at the happiness that we're all entitled to. That's right. We have a right to happiness. We have a right to pleasure. Some of us have to work a little harder, but that's okay. Makes it all the more worth it. Until we speak next time, have a fantastic week. Enjoy a nice walk in the sun. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.